Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Matthew Blitner, and in case you didn't catch our theme song written by Jessica Page DeMary, whose full works are accessible online at jdcompositions.com, this is Outside the Studio. So, for the next 57 minutes, please sit back, relax, and enjoy some hot and cold sports tapes as we have a terrific show lined up for you here today. Uh, in fact, our co-host, Daniel Green, unfortunately, is in COVID protocol after being exposed to the virus. So he's not here, but we hope to have him remote in later on in the show as we will be having two guests. One is a Hockey Hall of Famer in Mark Howe. Yes, that is right, the son of the late, great Gordie Howe. He is a Hall of Famer in his own right as a defenseman, as well as one of the top scouts in the Detroit Red Wings organization. And then later on in the show, we will be joined by the number one New York Knicks beat writer in New York City for the New York Post, Mark Berman. In between, we'll give a tribute to the deceased Hank Aaron, who passed away earlier this morning and has left the baseball world just reeling in its wake. And we will also close out the show with some more pits for this weekend's NFL playoff games in which Daniel and I last week tied 9-9 in our point system, both of us getting three out of four games right. So we have a lot to unpack for you today, and we're going to get started in just a minute with Mark Howe. So while we wait for our producer to call in Mark, we're going to remember that Everyone, please stay safe during these times. Again, you know, we have COVID protocols in place for a reason with a number of people. And we hope that everyone remains vigilant, wears a mask, stays inside during these times. And we can hopefully get through this virus and enjoy our sports and the rest of our lives very, very soon. Um, Getting to Mark Howe, he, of course, played in the WHA, which is the World Hockey Association, from 1973 to 79 for the Houston Arrows, and then in the NHL from 1979 to 1995 for the Hartford Whalers, the Philadelphia Flyers, and the Detroit Red Wings. He has career totals of 929 games in the NHL, 197 goals, 545 assists for a grand total of 742 points, and was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2011, so he brings a wealth of expertise and knowledge to the game. He uses it as a scout now in the Red Wings organization, and Mark has been gracious enough to join us here today in a minute. He, of course, has uh, had the chance to play with his father, Gordy Howe, uh, at the beginning of his career, the end of Gordy's, and he has been just a tremendous boon to the NHL family, to the Red Wings organization. He's currently located here in the Northeast with the of Northeast teams between the Rangers, the Islanders, the Devils, and everyone else. So we're connecting him in right now, and we'll hear from him in just a second. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for joining us here on Outside the Studio. Uh, just to get us kit started here a little bit, you know, the season is four games old, roughly, for some teams. I know there's the Dallas Stars haven't yet played, and a couple of teams probably have five games in their pocket at this point. But for you as a scout, how has that changed your role and your job during this pandemic when access is so, so different? Um, I don't know. I'm just, uh, what I do, I just rely on... Uh uh, being in pro hockey for about 48 years and uh, no matter how much teams prepare and uh, guys do their uh, off ice workouts and everything else, 
Uh, it's not the same as a game situation. So um, I'm taking the first couple weeks of games with a grain of salt. I mean, I'm paying attention to them, but uh, I'm expecting the games to get better, the players to get better as the timing gets better, especially the goalies. They haven't faced any rubber for, uh, in some cases, some guys haven't seen a puck for 10 months uh, in a game situation. So, um, you know, if they do struggle, uh, it's expected. Uh, but I would expect it to come around and get back to normal. I would say within two weeks, two to three weeks from the beginning of the of the uh, start of the season. Now, part of that struggle might be attributed to the fact that there was absolutely no exhibition games this year, no preseason games at all, as the league attempted to get started quickly and to avoid COVID as much as possible. How much of a factor is it for teams? I know they play scrimmages a lot, which, you know, that replicates a little bit of what they want to do. But how important are the preseason games in getting players ready for the actual season? Uh, well, I think it's vitally important. Uh, I mean, just uh, through my 22 years of playing pro hockey, you, uh, you, you prepare yourself to uh, get ready for training camp. You come to camp, you can play all the exhibition games you want. Uh, but they're not the same as, uh, uh, or you can play all the uh, inter-squad games you want, but they're not the same as an exhibition. Historically, after your first exhibition game, it's uh, it's a little fatigue. It's a, you're using muscles a little different. Maybe your compete level is higher, um, uh, uh, and it takes a couple of days to get used to it and get your timing down. And uh, normally, it's three to four to five games. Uh, I think you notice that even in the playoffs last year after quite a long layoff and uh teams just jumped in and played and only a couple uh preliminary games and uh the first round was a little bit rusty uh but i think it got uh right into i thought it was excellent hockey uh from that point forward but but you could see the teams were just a little bit rusty and that was expected as well and of course you know during that at uh, first round uh the first round of the nhl playoffs is generally very infamous or famous, depending on how you want to look at it, for a lot of physicality, a lot of body checks, fights. It, it gets very, very tough during that because no one wants to go home, especially not in the first round. And maybe that was a little bit absent in the weight of everything that was going on in the world, so they relied a little bit more on skill. Did you see that as one of the things that was different in the first round last year, or was that something that really didn't catch your eye? No, I just I, I I like I said I, I thought the NHL did a great job. Uh, I thought the players did a wonderful job. Uh, you know, the the guys were prepared as they could possibly be. Uh, but when you're not playing games and you're inactive for uh, you know such a long period of time, it it just takes a while. I, I know you know as an example, I think you know the Flyers did okay in the playoffs. But they weren't, uh, when the league got shut down, uh, in early March, uh, they were on a roll. They were playing really good hockey. And, uh, I mean, their, their confidence level was sky high. Uh, when they came back, I think they played pretty well, but they weren't at that same level. And it's hard to get it back, uh, in such a short period of time. And I think that probably happened to one or two teams. Um, you know, so it's, uh, uh, it takes away, you know, the teams that have momentum going into the playoffs, uh, I, I think it's a big advantage. Um, but when you get shut down, 
things happen. So uh, uh, that was part of the, uh, yeah, I think, the problem for maybe a couple teams and took a couple teams to get going. And uh, and even if, say, you, you could have won a series, say, in five games, but you're a little rusty and you end up going to seven games, uh, over the course of a, uh, playoff run, uh, playing all those extra games and not getting, uh, days of rest makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And you mentioned, of course, you know, how, how it is for players in your wealth of experience. One of the teams that you did play for was the Flyers, of course, along with the Red Wings and the Whalers. For you, and of course, you didn't have to go through this as a player because this is a once in a hundred year pandemic and hopefully never again. But for you, there were different types of stoppages uh, during your career. So how did you adjust personally to those when they came along, whether they were labor related or for whatever other reason? Uh, Like I said, uh, you know, the game of hockey continues to evolve as does the training and everything else. But back in the day, yeah, you, your your job was to you know try to keep yourself prepared for uh, whenever that phone call came. You knew you had to play again. Um, so uh, and like I said, I, I I think over the course of time, like when I started playing in the WHA back in '73, uh, your training camp used to be three weeks long. You skated twice a day, and wow, um, and you yeah you you went two and a half weeks of. of Double, uh, twice a day before you played an exhibition game. And you were still uh, alive and standing for the regular game? Oh, oh, yeah. And then I know when I play with the Flyers, we used to play 11 or 12 exhibition games, and uh, and there was no sitting out and try. You played just about every game. We had a player here in Philadelphia, Ray Allison, who we had seven games in seven days all in different cities against seven opponents. Uh, and Ray had to play every single game. I know, I know it was against, uh, the collective bargaining agreement, but, uh, you know, the coaches felt that, uh, that's what they needed to do. And, uh, so yeah, like, and those things don't happen nowadays. So, uh, you, you spend a lot more time, I guess, uh, toning your, uh, your body and getting a better condition at camp. Whereas nowadays the players train, uh, around, um, you know, three, 365 and, uh, and they're ready. I mean, that's usually not an issue. I think it still is with the odd player, but, um, like I said, I think that's where I credited the players, um, during the playoffs because, I mean, there was a pretty long layoff, uh, and, and guys stayed ready to play. Like I said, what was lacking was a little bit of competition level and uh just a little bit of timing and uh and they got that back pretty quick but if you're not in decent uh shape it takes longer than that so i i i I credit the players for for what they did and then you know you got teams that didn't make the playoffs like the red wings and um i'm watching our guys uh we played the other day and we're skating working and competing hard so i mean uh, a little bit of timing and uh you know and it's one of those things where i know we lacked some confidence last year and if we can put a few wins together once you start getting confidence uh you're a different team you're different athletes um and uh but all that takes time to uh to put together and uh but i, I think the the players in national hockey league have done it uh, uh as a as a whole have done an excellent job of, of battling their way through uh uh the the adjustments they've had to make because of the pandemic now you've mentioned of course how our hockey is continually evolving and that's not just the game but that's also the individual positions you yourself were a defenseman and we've seen 
the role of defenseman change a lot since you played? Uh, there's a lot more up tempo, a lot more puck carrying. You know, there's it's not just staying at home. Not that necessarily everyone was staying home. You did play during you know part of Bobby Orr's career when he helped to revolutionize the sport. But for you, what do you feel is the role of defenseman? How that has changed in the years since you finished playing? I don't know. I, I, I think basically the, uh, the game uh, itself is, uh, is technically the same. I mean, you, you have to work uh, both ends of the rink. Uh, as a defenseman, your primary job is to keep the puck out of the net. And, uh, but, you know, also you can uh, – there's some guys that have the ability to make a difference in the other, on the other end of the rink. Um, I know, uh, like I said, I, I played left wing uh, in the WHA and uh, I played left wing until I was, I think, 24, 25 years of age. That's when I became a defense. And so I learned, I learned on the job. But I, I think the, the biggest thing that's changed is the, the coaching. Um, uh, I think, you know, years ago, you used to have three on twos or, you know, you tried to have one guy high. So you had a three on three coming back in your end and, and the two guys that run on the four check, they didn't have to come back hard. And, uh, but now, I mean, with back pressure, um, you know, if you, if you have a three on two rush, uh, you can't wait and pick your, pick your spot and delay and turn up and do all this stuff because now the fourth and fifth back checker are, are there. When you go to, you know, any extra time you used to have uh, is gone. I To me, that's the biggest change. There's no time and space. Uh, so you don't see as much creativity uh, nowadays as it used to. Uh, it's more chip the puck in deep, uh, cycle the puck high to low. Uh, a lot of coaches now, they just preach uh, for the bigger defense and to stand up and block shots. I mean, it's, it's really hard to get pucks through the net from the back end anymore, but um yeah but basically basically the game's the same i just think it's better coached uh the players are better prepared i mean you you know almost exactly what players are going to do on the power play on the penalty kill um that's your job to try to uh to be better than that and uh yeah so i mean that's to me that's the biggest difference in the game is how well it's coached and and the preparation uh that's put in for the players and that preparation of course as you alluded to earlier you know it's year-round now uh, because players just keep themselves in such good shape i want to turn your attention there because you mentioned how you played left wing in the WHA before eventually converting to defenseman. And there's a player in the metropolitan area right now named Keandre Miller on the New York Rangers, who he wasn't quite the same age when he made that uh, adjustment. He he was in college as a, a defenseman after being a forward for a good portion of his, his younger years. So... Talk to us a little bit about how that transition goes, because I know a lot of New Yorkers, they're very hyped about this kid, and who's better to speak about that transition than someone who turned it into a Hall of Fame career? Uh, well, I, I have not yet had the opportunity to uh, to watch him play, but I know for myself, um, like I said, the biggest difference now is uh, with all the video work, with all the time the coaches put in. I mean, coaches used to get to the practice rink about an hour before you went on the ice, and, uh, and the players would get there. You go on the ice, you practice, you do your thing, you go home. Now players get there at uh, and coaches get there uh, a lot of times at six six thirty in the morning. It doesn't matter if their plane landed at two o'clock from the night before from a uh, from a flight, um, and they're in there. And if 
you're working on a player, well, you're you're prepping video. So when that player gets in there a couple hours before practice time, uh, they have the opportunity to sit and watch and study. Uh, I know what helped me a lot was when I play with the Flyers, and I'd only play defense for basically a year and a half. Uh, when I got here, I'd, uh, I'd go out and have a bite to eat, maybe a beer or so after a game, uh, and the replays of our games were on at 1 o'clock, 1 or 2 every night. I'd come and watch the replay of our game every night on TV. So I tried to do my, yeah, well, that's, but that's the only way you get better. I mean, you, you listen to, uh, you know, you watch interviews of football players and different things. And it's the guys who put in the time to try to study and become better at their craft. Those are the guys who, that's the only, that's how you, one of the ways you get better. You learn how to not make mistakes that we all make as we, as we develop. Uh, and that's what makes you a better player when you, when you quit making those mistakes that are so costly, um, then you become a more consistent, better overall player. And and as a defenseman, the better you are defensively, that's what makes you better offensively. So that that's the one thing I do know for sure. You you have to become sound in your own end of the rank. And you talk about any team that has success. They will not have success if they're not good in their own end of the rink. Uh, the basis of any offense uh, and transition game is being solid in, in your own end of the rink. And, uh, and that's, that's a philosophy I took as a player. I, and everybody said, well, you were so good offensively because I, I don't know, I had 1,200 points or whatever it was in my career. But my, my take on it was no, I was a, I was a good defenseman. I knew, I knew how to keep the puck out of my net. Uh, Eddie Van Ipp, who used to play with the Flyers, taught me a lot about how he played the game, and I adapted a lot of what he did to my game, um, the way he thought it, and um, that made me a much better defensive defenseman. But then that that offered me the opportunity to be better, uh, to pick my spots better, and and to um, you know create more offense that way. And that's all a great, great synopsis of how, how it's going right now in the NHL and everything. For Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are just tuning in, we're talking with NHL Hall of Fame defenseman and Mark Howe, who also is in the Red Wings organization in their scouting department. Mark, before we let you go, we want to know, are there any players, maybe two or three players across the league, who you are particularly keen on that could be in line for a breakout year this year, even with all the shortened schedule and the different divisional alignment? Well, no, I, I think it's just going to be such a different year. I, I think there's the potential for, I, I think, a number of players. Uh, I, I know I'm in charge of scouting, uh, you know, the, the Rangers, the Islanders, uh, the Bruins, and, and the, the guys in the East. And uh, so I'm watching some game, games on TV. But I, I think there's actually the potential for a lot of guys to have a breakout because conditions are so different. Um, I know uh, I, I watched the Devils a couple games. Uh, I, I think Jack Hughes is getting better and better and better. I think he has the potential to be. Uh, a really, really good player. Uh, I know he's still really young. He needs some strength, but um, there, there's some guys that uh, there's a lot of guys like that. I think there's some guys that had some uh, some excellent playoff runs last year. I know, like in Dallas, Heiskanen, uh, a lot of those guys. I think there's a the the influx of uh, really good young talent. Uh, I think is uh, really going to impact the league. I mean, you you look at uh, what Matthews has done. You look at McDavid and Dreisaitl has done over the last you know 
three, four, or five years. Um, maybe not to the extent uh, that those guys have impacted the league, but I think there's going to be a number of players that impact it uh, at a level that's not too far from that, and that's going to be the biggest. And I think that's it's great for the game of hockey that uh, some of these great young players are coming along. Thank you, Mart, and again, thank you so much for joining us here on Outside the Studio. Uh, best to you and the Red Wings organization this year, and you know, hopefully. Yeah, the Red Wings can really ramp up their turnaround and we can see Hockey Town once more in a prominent spot on the National Hockey League calendar. Um, so we're going to let you go right now. And ladies and gentlemen, when we come back, we're going to be talking the Hank Aaron news after the legendary baseball player passed away early this morning. So again, looking forward to that. And Mark, thank you again for joining us. Great. Thank you. Glad to help out. You're welcome. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be getting our guest host, our co-host, Daniel Green, who is not with us today. Again, he's in COVID protocol. We are going to connect him in so we can do a Hank Aaron tribute in just a minute. Uh, For those of you who weren't aware, Hank Aaron passed away this morning at the age of 86. He was born in Alabama. Uh, Of course, he's well known for breaking Babe Ruth's home run career, home run record of 714. He hit number 715 on April 8, 1974 at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium versus the L.A. Dodgers off of Al Downing. And it was just, he had such a tremendous career. It's really, it, it's a shame to see him go. There's a lot of writers and broadcasters, players around the league, all generations, who have looked up to Hank Aaron and have looked up to the type of player and person that he is. And so we are going to give him a tribute as we are about to be joined by our normal co-host, Daniel Green. Uh, Daniel, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear, Matthew. All right. Welcome, Daniel. Uh, We're sorry to hear that you're in COVID protocol today. Uh, What's your take? And just give us some of your thoughts on Hank Aaron, not just the player, but the person. Well... Hank Aaron is somebody that I think a lot of people were really privileged to see, and baseball was privileged to have him as part of the game. This is somebody whose feats in terms of baseball are legendary and are will be unmatched. This is somebody, let's just talk pure statistics. Everybody talks about the guy having the most home runs besides Bonds of all time. But what people don't talk about is that even if you take away every single one of his home runs, all 755 of them, he'd still have 3,000 hits and still would have enough to get into the Hall of Fame. So as a baseball player, he was unmatched. He had only five seasons where he had more than 65 strikeouts. He didn't have a season where he had over 100, and he was a power hitter. He had years where he walked more than he struck out. And... Those, it's, it's, yeah, those, it's, those, it's hard to measure. Those are all great points. And, you know, he debuted April 13th, 1954, which was almost seven years today after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, which, of course, you know, is big because without that, I don't think that we're even talking about Hank Aaron having the career that he did. He was the model of consistency for 21 straight years. He was an all-star. That's a MLB record. The only years he didn't make it were his first year in 1954 and his last year in 1976. Um, and to be quite honest, he also is 
fifth all, uh, third all time, sorry, third all time in career hits with 37.71. He had a 305 batting average, and a major league best 2297 RBIs. He had between 20 and 45 home runs every year of his career, except for the first and last two. So for 20 straight years, he was a model of consistency. And and he was a model statistically and a model of consistency, and that can't be overshadowed. But the other part of Hank Aaron is who he was as a man. And this is somebody who had to deal with a tremendous amount of racism. It wasn't the same as Jackie Robinson, but it was it was comparable. This is somebody who had to deal with death threats because people Absolutely. really uh, yeah especially- people didn't. Especially, want him to break the record. Especially, yeah, when he went for that record. I mean, look, we saw in 1961 when Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle went after Babe Ruth's single-season home run record of 60. The death threats and just the hatred that the two of them and later just Maris, once Mantle dropped out of the race, what they faced. And for Aaron, it was a hundred times worse. He was going after, first of all, it was a sport that hadn't yet quite integrated uh, fully to the point where players of color were accepted the way they are today. Uh, they, It was just so, so different. And also, he was going after, he wasn't going after a single season record. He was going after the hollowed record in Major League Baseball history. There was no one who was ever supposed to break Babe Ruth's career home run record. That was supposed to stand until the planet stopped spinning and the game of baseball was wiped off the face of the planet with the rest of the human population. That was not supposed to ever happen. But the fact that he did it, and now to this day is actually still considered by many to be the rightful home run champ because many don't believe that Barry Bonds did it clean, it's really uh, just a huge loss for Major League Baseball, for the baseball community at large, and, of course, for Aaron's surviving family. And also, as an ambassador for baseball, there's very few guys that were a better ambassador to baseball. Even with everything that happened with Barry Bonds and all of the, you know, a lot of the drama that surrounds that record and a lot of people's feelings about it, which are completely justified, Hank Allen was a good sport. He did do a surprise video when Bonds broke the record. And even though Aaron had all of these records, one of the things that he always stood by was baseball's not about records. It's about people playing at their best. It's about getting the fullness out of your potential. And he was somebody who definitely did that and definitely encouraged many others and was a personal hero to many in the game. That's just a beautiful, beautiful way to say it. Uh, And I'll just add in, In 1999, Major League Baseball announced and introduced the Hank Aaron Award, which is given annually to the best overall offensive performer in each league. Uh, Aaron himself, as well as a panel of Hall of Famers and fans, determined the winners, and it's a legacy that will live on with him. Daniel, we're again sorry to hear that you couldn't make it here to the show today. We'll be joined, ladies and gentlemen, by the New York Post, New York Knicks beat writer Mark Berman in just a minute. And then we'll be rejoined by Daniel as we get to our NFL playoff. So, Daniel, we'll be leaving you right now, but we'll be coming back to you shortly. All right, I'll speak to you pretty soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will be bringing in the New York Post, Mark Berman, in just a minute as we recap everything going on with the New York Knicks. 
They are surprised. 8-8 eight and eight team at the moment. Who saw that coming in regular, uh, before the season began? They were talking about they could have been 1-15 at the moment. And they, they was taught that this was going to be one of the worst teams in the, at least in the New York City area, if not in the entire NBA. And, you know, the Knicks, they just won against the Warriors 119-104 last night. And they're now against the Sacramento Kings tonight. So we have a lot to unpack with Berman. He is going to give us his thoughts on everything going on with the New York Knicks. This is a year where, you know what, enjoy everything you've got, Knicks fans, because this is something that was not expected. And for a quick shout-out to my CBS co-workers, Victoria, Veronica, Chris, uh, I know that you guys are tuning in and listening right now, so thank you for supporting us here on the show as we prepare to bring in Mark Berman, who will be joining us in just a second. So let's get him connected. Hey, Mark, can you hear me? Yeah, hey, Matt, how are you? Good. Thank you for joining us here on Outside the Studio. Uh, we know that it's a crazy time for you traveling and with the Knicks. So let's get started here. What did you see out of this team last night? I know this isn't the Warriors of a couple of years ago when they were in their dynasty, but it's still a big thing to win this game. Yeah, there, there were two games over 500, uh, the Warriors entering, entering the game, and Curry had been playing terrific basketball. They don't have Clay Thompson, and that's the biggest difference. Uh, but they're a solid team, and they're going to be heard from in the Western Conference. And for the Knicks to go into San Francisco, still getting used to the time zone, and not just beating them, but routing them from start to finish. This game wasn't really close at any point. The Knicks were up eight points, you know, midway through the first quarter. And, you know, they were up in the second half. You know, the Warriors made a rally in the second quarter, but the Knicks dominated the second half and really shut down Curry. A great, great sign for Tom Thibodeau's club. And, you know, you mentioned Tom Thibodeau with this. He's If he's not in the running as at least a favorite for Coach of the Year right now, I really don't know who is. But what about Thibodeau? And, of course, some try to have to go to Leon Rose's team president. But what about Thibodeau has really revitalized this team. I mean, no one saw 8-8 eight and eight starting, or at least no one that I've spoken to saw 8-8 eight and eight as the start through 16 games. Right. I remember getting an email in preseason uh, with the odds of Coach of the Year odds. You know, they have all these uh, offbeat uh, betting propositions nowadays. And I remember the odds for Thibodeau were like over 100 to 1. And I thought it was a little strange. It's like, we know the Knicks aren't going to be very good, but would you think that, well, Kibbeta would be one of those guys that could help a team overachieve and might actually be in the running? So, like, if the Knicks finish at 500 or a couple games over 500, he's going to get some votes because originally going into the season with his talent level, they were predicted to get 22 wins in a 72-game season. So that's 22 and 50. So I thought the odds were crazy, and I honestly think that he'll be in the conversation as long as the Knicks are playing 500 or a little better basketball. Uh, the defense has been outstanding the last three games especially, and they lead the league uh, in a defensive uh, field goal percentage, uh, lowest scoring average for the opponent. Uh, they're 
They have a lot of energy. They have a lot of emotion. Uh, you know, I've covered this team for 21 years. Uh, this is, listen, I wish the fans were in the building, but this is as excited as I've been in about, what, seven years. They've missed the playoffs seven straight years since that 54-win season. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the, I guess, I don't want to call him necessarily a surprise, but I don't think anyone saw him doing what he's doing currently with Julius Randle, who he's averaging 22-11. and 11. Uh, Last night he went 17 rebounds, 9 to 16 points. Is, is he building up his trade value, or is he going to be a real building block for this team? You know, I hear that stuff. It's like when you, you sign him as your premier free agent, in 2019, he had a disappointing first season in New York, for sure. But when you finally see him develop into an all-star level player, forget about the old thinking. It's taken him a while to get into great basketball shape, to be able to get the most out of his basketball talent. He's in great shape. I heard the rumors in the summer. He's in Dallas. You know, he bought, he's from Dallas, but he usually spends off seasons in Los Angeles. This time he spent the pandemic in Dallas and was getting into great shape. And he's just playing smarter. Somehow his three-point shot abandoned him last season, even though he wasn't bad in Orleans. And now he's pretty trusty for three-point range. And he's kind of unstoppable when he rambles to the rim. He's a big, strong, six-time guy. I wish we would stop talking about trading him. I mean, he's finally entering the pure prime of his career, and he's looking like he's going to be an all-star player if he continues this type of dedication of being in this type of shape. Now, we'll see with all these minutes. Maybe he breaks down... And, you know, isn't the same player in a month. But right now, I hope the Knicks aren't thinking of trading him. I, I mean, I certainly hope not. As a Knicks fan back home here in New York, I've, you know, I'm loving what he's doing. And, you know, it's almost taking some of the pressure off of guys like R.J. Barrett, Emmanuel Twitley, and Obi Toppin, and allowing them to grow into their roles. Because let's be honest, the three of them are a big part, I would think, of the future of this team. So what's your thoughts on those three? Well, you make a great point about Toppin. All the hype, he gets drafted. I'm writing stories. You know, how is he going to coexist with Randall? Is Randall going to be able to get enough minutes? Listen, Obi Toppin is not ready. He He's making the jump from Dayton University a mid-major. He didn't have that summer league, as we've talked about so many times. So many of these rookies are missing having that summer league experience and also reporting to a training camp, usually a month early, to scrimmage with your teammates. Didn't have that either. It was such a condensed time after the draft. So Obi's not ready, and this is great because the scrutiny is not on what's wrong with Obi. Randall is getting so many minutes Obi could come in for 12 minutes a night. You know, he runs the floor beautifully. He's a still a good dunker. He plays well without the ball. But he's not a starter right now. And if Randall had gotten hurt or if Randall was not playing well, 
There'd be more minutes going his way, and he would, he would be underperforming. But right now, he's in a good role as, you know, a backup guy who doesn't have to log a lot of minutes. Quickly is a lot more advanced. Even though they both played two years in college basketball, Quickly did it at Kentucky. That's a big difference than David. And Quickly has really adjusted to the NBA game. Obviously did not play point guard in Kentucky, but he's a, in his eyes, he's a true point guard, and he's shown it. Did anyone expect this from Quickly? I mean, and you know, I feel like... He wasn't really part of the preseason, you know, people talking about this player or that player as people to watch. And it seems like he almost sort of exploded onto the scene. Is that an accurate summation of him? Uh, totally. Uh, he was the 25th pick in the draft, which is a late pick. But the, the mock drafts had him some at 51. I saw 45. I saw 48. This wasn't even an early second round projection or late first round early second round this was a deep second round projection because people you know the scouts were making the estimation that does his game translate to the nba he didn't play point guard in college so he'd have to be a shooting guard who's undersized not very strong so how is he going to defend they didn't think he had an nba position his NBA position is point guard. Sure enough, he could slide over to the two at times, but he's a ball handler, and he, he has a nice knack. He's found topping with a lot of nice baskets. Uh, listen, the Knicks have an inside intel intelligence for the Kentucky program with Kenny Payne as their new assistant coach, with William Wesley as their new senior VP. Wesley has been an agent for John Calipari. He's been very close to the Kentucky program. And Leon Rose also uh, used to represent Calipari, uh, not directly, but he's been close to the Calipari and the Kentucky program as well. So the Knicks outsmarted a lot of teams. It's an inside job. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Payne saw that this guy did more, can do more in the NBA than he did at Kentucky. Absolutely, and one, and the other guy who we were talking about, R.J. Barrett, he had 28 points last night, which I believe is a career high. Uh, what you know, there was a lot, a lot of hype, probably even more than there was for Obi Toppin last year when Barrett was drafted. What have you seen out of him, and is this a sign of things to come, or is you know what's going on with him? I mean, he's a very tough player to figure out. He was a disappointing player at the number three pick as a rookie did make the two rookie teams as we've ridden a number of times and he brought it up in training camp saying, yes, it's a big motivating factor. He felt slighted. Listen, he's gone through a few major shooting slumps during the season, but he never loses his confidence. He's a ball of energy. He's a bull inside. He rebounds well, constantly attacking. You know, they talk about players with high motors, low motors, Kevin Knox is accused of having not a great motor. R.J. Barrett has a motor. He never stops. His team could be down 18 points. He's driving to the basket like it's a two-point game with 10 seconds left. The guy never stopped competing, and it's really working out for him recently. Again, he's had some shooting slumps. He's not a very good three-point shooter yet. He did hit a couple of big ones last night. And he's got to improve from that, from range. But he does so many other things. 
you know, this guy is going to be in the all-star conversation, not this season, but I think in years to come. I certainly hope so. And, you know, it seems the Knits and the Nets, who, of course, share New York City together, the Knits are building through the draft. I know Randall was a signing. He wasn't a draft pick. But, you know, between Barrett and Quickly and Toppin, they, the Knits are going about this in a methodical draft, build through the draft type of way, which we all know is the long-term success. But by contrast, the Nets have gone out they signed KD, they signed Kyrie Irving, they traded for James Harden and gave up pretty much most of their future. I know that they're two different teams at two different points in their development curve right now, but just talk to us a little bit about how these two teams compare and contrast to each other in the way that they're doing about building a winner. Yeah, listen, the Nets are built to win the championship this year and next year, and you know, I wish they had a bigger fan base. They don't. I think people still in New York City still talk more about the, the, the Knicks than the Nets. Around the country, obviously, they talk more about Brooklyn, but not here where we live. Uh, the, the Knicks are still a work in progress, but at least there's a future because you got building blocks in RJ, in uh, Quickly, in Mitchell Robinson, who we haven't talked about. He's played very well on both ends of the court. Still doesn't shoot the ball, but he does so many things defensively and is a, a rim runner who's an alley-oop threat uh, almost every possession. And obviously, we, you know, we talked about Randall as an all-star in the making. They're not ready yet. As Jeff Van Gundy told me the other day, there's so many great signs that they've established ident- an identity, but they still need more offensive talent. But they do have a lot of draft picks to trade. The Nets are right now the here and now. It's exciting. I wish them well. I wish they had more fans. And right now, even with their dream team, they're not stealing any Knicks fans because Knicks fans are watching the Knicks, not at the Garden, but they're watching them on MSG Network, as we reported, ratings up 26% over last season. Yes, and of course, New York City, the, people can debate it all they want. It will always be a knit town, a knit city. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're currently talking with Mark Berman of the New York Post. Mark, before we let you go, the, and look, it's only 16 games into the season out of 72, which is not a lot. But the Knicks are currently in the playoff picture. Extrapolate out for us. Do you think this team has what it takes to hold on to one of the bottom seeds and they'll look, they'll probably be out in the first round anyway if they do manage to hold on. But can you see them holding on to one of the bottom seeds and at least giving that extra couple games of playoff atmosphere for their young team to experience? Yeah, well, this season is a little different. Now there's a 10 team format where the ninth and 10th place teams are going to play the 7 and 8 in this play in thing. So can it be top 10? Definitely they could be top 10. I'd love to see them be legitimately an 8th seed or 7th seed because they play defense. They have a great coach who knows. Here's the thing with Thibodeau. Maybe I've written it. Maybe I haven't written it enough. He knows who to, who to play in crucial moments. He knows when to extend the minutes of, say, Payton. And when quickly he's going well, he knows to extend him. And he also knows when not to play quickly and when to play Peyton. It's a, it's a, 
It's Dale never had that knack. Derek Fisher didn't know what he was doing. We see Thibodeau knowing who to have on the court in the fourth quarter in a close game. Uh, and they are very motivated on the defensive end. He's guided through to them. The biggest fear is, are they going to wear down? He has a short rotation, playing Randall monster minutes, playing Barrett monster minutes. Although I will say Barrett played big minutes as a rookie, held up well. So I think he could hold up well this year. I'm a little worried about Randall, quite frankly. Uh, but right now, if I had to predict, I think they'll be in the top ten for sure. Oh, thank you so much, and I hope that you end up being more than right about that, and I'm sure a lot of Knicks fans around New York City agree with me. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on Outside the Studio, and Knicks fans, please go out and make sure that you pay attention to Mark's coverage in the New York Post, as he really is just a terrific, terrific source of Knicks knowledge. Uh, we'll be back in a minute with our co-host Daniel Green to do our NFL playoff picks. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be connecting in Daniel in just a minute as we get to our pits for this weekend's AFC and NFC championship games uh, between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Green Bay Packers, as well as the Buffalo Bills and Kansas City Chiefs. It should be a very, very exciting weekend, actually just a very exciting Sunday as we look forward to what will happen and who will get to go to the big game. Daniel, are you there? Yes, I am, Matt. Loved, I love the optimism from from Mark Berman. I, I, it's good to hear, and, and it's been a long time, so it's good to really get that. Absolutely, and you know, so we're now we're going to get into this. You know, you and I last week we we made some picks. Uh, we had a four point pick, a three point, two point, and one point pick. Uh, there was a lot of uh, talk about whether which one of us was going to be right uh, and who was going to win, who was going to have bragging rights, and for all that bravado from from both of us, it, we tied nine nine. So clearly, uh, there was you know there's some unfinished business here. So. Let's start off in the NFC here with the Buccaneers-Packers. Give us your thoughts on this game now that we know that Antonio Brown will be out uh, with a knee injury. And, I mean, look, Tom Brady has a million weapons anyway, but that one definitely hurts. It, it hurts, but as has been said, he does have many weapons. This is an offense that is dangerous, that can beat you in a number of different ways. If you look at their game against the Saints, it wasn't necessarily Tom Brady doing it by himself. The running game played well. The defense made big plays. So while this injury matters, it's not the be-all and end-all. But on the other hand, what I will say is that in week six, these two teams played, and I watched that game, and Tampa Bay really destroyed Green Bay, and it wasn't very close. It was one of the worst losses Aaron in Aaron Rodgers' career. And he looked horrible. He threw two straight picks. One of them was a pick six, and one of them was basically a pick six. But this game is a lot different. As Bruce Arians said, this is a different Bucks team. It's a different Packers team. Aaron Rodgers just had one of the greatest seasons that we've seen from a quarterback. I mean, he does that and every year. <laughs> Let's be fair. He does I mean, that, that almost couple, every year. Last, I mean, not the last couple to the same degree. And this year really stands apart. And Brady's had a good year, too. And Tampa Bay's had a good year. But the thing is, Tampa Bay, 
although they make a lot of plays on defense, at times they have looked vulnerable in the secondary. Now, they have a lot of guys who are good playmakers. They have Davis, um, and they have a good, you know, they have they have Bush. They have a, they have a good they have a good defense all around. But the issue I think that's going to happen is Aaron Rodgers is going to be able to make plays. He's going to be able to escape. And I see the Packers taking this down. And actually, this is my I, – I, I don't know how we're doing it in terms of points. We're doing three my, points and two points. This is my – actually, my, my three-point pick. Um, I see really – it's going to be really difficult with – everything that's been going on with Green Bay for Tampa Bay's defense to keep up. Okay, well, to make sure that we have tiebreakers in place here, we're going to see who can be the most accurate in guessing the final score of the game, so that way, in case we have, we both have the same three- and two-point pitch, we can at least have something that'll break that tie. So, for you, what do you think this final score is going to be for Green Bay-Tampa Bay? Because we all know that you like to go on the low end of the scoring scale, while I like to go up above. Um, this game, I'm seeing as 34 to. 27. So I do think that Tampa Bay will score. I mean, they, they still have a two-headed rushing attack. They're still good offensively. But ultimately, Aaron Rodgers is... It's it's too much. And even the run game, it's it's too much. So 34-27, to 27, I see it being close and until the end. And look, one thing that you didn't even mention, this is Tom Brady's 14th conference championship game. Obviously, his first in the NFC, the other 13 coming in the AFC. For you, I mean, look, we we've we both live in New York City. Neither of us has really ever loved Tom Brady for what he's done to the New York teams. I mean, of course, you for the Giants, you know, you guys did get your revenge twice in the super in the big game. But for me, you know, as a Jets fan, I, I still can't get over what Brady's doing right here. And on the flip side, Aaron Rodgers has been campaigning for years. For a home championship game, granted, there won't be that many fans. I think there's going to be maybe 5,500 fans in attendance. But the cold weather, I have to agree, is going to be a factor in this. I think that uh, it's going to be a closer game than what you're predicting. It is also my three-point pitch. Uh, I'm going 38-35 Green Bay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's logical. Um, I just think that... Tiffany's defense, I think, is going to do a little bit more than that. But, it, but again, it's, it's, it's close, so we will see who gets the closer score on that. Absolutely. And, you know, I look forward to texting you throughout the game Sunday saying, guess who's going to win this one? Uh, and I'm sure you'll do the same <laughs> to me. Uh, moving into the AFC, we have the Bills at the Chiefs. Now, this wouldn't have been much of a toss-up until Patrick Mahomes went into concussion protocol during last week's game. He's uh, been cleared, officially been cleared as of a couple hours beforehand, uh, before the show today. Roughly right around the same time you got placed on the COVID list. And <laughs> he is, he seems like he's going to be a full doe. Now, I've had a couple concussions. I am not quite sure that he is completely over this. But look, I'm not a doctor. Neither are you. I'm sure our parents are both like, how did we raise two Jewish guys who didn't go into the field of medicine, but that's a story for another day. So, for you, what do you see out of this game right here? Because it seems like it'll be a lot closer than two weeks ago it would have been predicted to be. Even a few weeks ago, though, I would have thought that, that this game is going to be relatively close. 
these are two of the highest powered offenses in the league and they're both teams that pass the ball enormously that they're they're both great passing teams um with patrick mahomes it's difficult to know exactly what's going on there and if he'll be at a hundred percent even besides the concussion he's got something with his toe but look he can still, he, he can sit on his on his behind and he's still gonna throw for four touchdowns okay he, he, he doesn't he, need he his possibly fault. loses some of that mobility i think that's the concern but ultimately i don't think it's enough of a concern the chiefs have so many weapons and the Bills, although their defense played great last week against the Ravens, that's a very different type of Ravens attack. The Chiefs are fast. They're dynamic. There's a lot going on there. So I see this being as another high-scoring game. This might be and a college football video game type game. It's possible. I, I, I think that uh, we've, we've seen Josh Allen. I mean, he wasn't at his best necessarily last week, but... This is a different this is a different type of team than Baltimore. So I see this game being pretty high offense, but I see the Chiefs ultimately taking it down now that Patrick Mahomes has been officially cleared to play. So uh, so this is obviously my, your two point pick and mine. This well. is my two point pick, and I'm thinking it's gonna be this one I'm thinking is gonna be thirty eight to uh thirty one. Um, even though they're, it's a, it's a lower point pick, and it's the same closeness of the game. There, I think there are more scenarios where the Bills can make this into a fight. I think there are scenarios where the Bills put up more defense than we expect, or Mahomes isn't as sprightly as he's been in the past, or you know Josh Allen really has a spectacular game and really shows up. So I think. Even though it's a similar margin of victory, I'm thinking, at 38-31, this game, there's a lot more room for error, in my opinion, with it. Uh, and look, um, I'm actually going to do something that might surprise you. It's certainly surprising me. I'm going to say that this game's going to be a little bit lower scoring just because we don't quite know what is going to be with Patrick Mahomes. And again, I don't care that he's been cleared by medical professionals. He still has to be feeling something. You don't take... Uh, hit like that, you don't get a concussion, and all of a sudden, in 72 hours, feel 100% better. It just doesn't happen. So, he can say and be cleared and, you know, say he's going to go about everything the right way. There's no way the Chiefs are going to be as high-flying as they normally have been. I'm still picking them to win, but I'm saying it's going to be something like 31-28. So, that's my uh, margin in there. Again, still a field goal difference. But it, I just don't see the Chiefs putting up in the high 30s. And I don't see Buffalo putting up in the high 30s. Because this game, it, whenever there's two teams that have a lot of offensive hype, it always seems to have fewer points scored than not. So I'm going to go with a slightly lower score there. It's, I'm, I'm actually fairly excited for this weekend. I think this is going to be a good slate of games. I mean, last week... It was not. It was not as competitive as maybe some people were hoping for. But I think it's going to make up for that this week. You're going to see really fun games with a lot going on, and uh, and in my opinion, the four best teams in the league. I mean, Tampa Bay, although their record was worse than the Saints and the Seahawks, they were a team that was catching fire and really needed some time to coalesce. But they are better than their record says. 
So they're better than some of their parts, which is unfortunately a staple of the Tom Brady uh, years, as I like to call it. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see this weekend and to see if Tom Brady can overcome the odds. I mean, if if anybody's going to play in the cold weather who's from Tampa Bay, that's the guy that you would want. Yeah, him and Rob Gronkowski both have the experience where the rest of the team basically hasn't been to the playoffs in 13 years. I, there might be one or two players on their roster who have been in the playoffs with other teams, but Tampa hasn't been there in very, very long time. And, and that experience is what's guiding them through. And, you, I mean, we saw it throughout the season. There was a lot of talk about, is there drama between Arians and Brady and, and whatnot? I certainly Ultimately, hope so. It's all, well, but it's all cured by winning. And that's really, at the end of the day, what this team has done well. So I want to say, even if they lose as I expect them to, it's an enormous achievement that at 43 years old, Tom Brady was able to come back and do another ride to the NFC Championship game. Look, uh, power to Brady, power to Gronkowski coming out of retirement. I just hope that the dream ends here and now for them. I can't take seeing Brady win another game. Uh, my stomach is sick to knots in it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to let Daniel go here as we get to our final minute of the show. Daniel, thank you for joining us, and make sure you're out of, con- out of COVID protocol by next week, okay? I'll be out. I'll be out of con- uh, COVID protocol by next week. Sounds good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's all the time we have for you today. So please tune back in next Friday, January 29th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time for more hot and cold tapes. Once again, I'm Matthew Blitner saying thank you for tuning in. And if you enjoyed our theme song written by Jessica Page to Mary, please visit her website, jdcompositions.com, for her full works. And we'll see you next time on Outside the Studio. <laughs>